Welcome to Sihok Kashot Difficult Conversations. Today we're going to dive into the complex conversation that is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Before we get started, I want to do a few introductions. I'm your host, Maddie Anderson. I'm entering my final semester of rabbinical school as of this recording, and I'm excited to be here engaging in a difficult conversation as part of my capstone project. Uh, for today's conversation, we're joined by my friend, classmate, and soon-to-be rabbi, Ben Dime. Ben, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in Israel studies? Sure. Thank you, Maddie. I too am, yes, uh, God willing, also a soon-to-be rabbi entering my final semester of school at HUC. My interest in Israel and Palestinian studies is just a generations-old family interest. My grandfather, my Zaidi, his family thought about moving to Israel and they decided to remain in Canada. My grandmother was in like Habonim drawer camp, that kind of thing when she was younger. And both my dad's sisters spent significant amount of time in Israel when I was when I was a kid. And so there's just this family interest. And you know, ever since I went there in 96 on my after high school trip, it's become very real and just really enjoyed taking Hebrew and, and going several times and, and spending the first year at HUC there learning and continuing to learn since then. And hopefully, you know, many, many, many years into the future, learning and teaching. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I love that family connection. I have to say, I mean, I grew up in a household where we talked about Israel and Zionism and gave money to plant trees, which will probably come up a little bit later in our conversation. And, you know, we really, we celebrated Israel. And I, I remember my mom sharing stories about her mom's joy when Israel became a state, but wasn't really a big part of my family. I don't think it was until rabbinical school that I I really started to fall in love with Israel studies. Um, ben and I have been in a few different fellowships and classes discussing Israel, Zionism, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, peoplehood, culture, so many different aspects of Israel. Today, we're going to we're going to focus on the conflict, but of course, peoplehood, culture, all of that is kind of wrapped up in the conversation. So let's dive in. There's a million different ways that we can approach this conversation. I really struggled to choose which direction to go because there are so many options, but I landed on picking two different sets of texts. So we're going to look at some poetry and then some quotes from an American Jewish journalist. The poetry is from an Israeli poet. And for anybody who wants to study along with us, or particularly if you want to take this conversation into your own spaces and have it with your friends, your community members, your family, you can find the text sheet on my website, rabbimaddie.com and look at it electronically, print it out, follow along. Um, or you can just listen. That is also an option. So thank you so much for tuning in. Who is Yehuda Amichai? Yehuda Amichai is one of the most prolific Hebrew poets of the 20th century. His work has been translated into several different languages, including English, which will make our lives a little bit easier today. We won't, we won't be diving in from the Hebrew. He was born in Germany in 1924 and moved with his family to Palestine in 35 before 
um, the state of Israel was established. And then he remained in Israel until his death in the year 2000. Let's dive into a little bit of his work. The first poem we're bringing you is titled Sonnet. Amichai writes, My father fought their war four years or so and did not hate or love his enemies. Already he was forming me, I know, daily out of his tranquilities. Tranquilities so few which he had gleaned between the bombs and smoke for his son's sake and put into his ragged knapsack with the leftovers of my mother's hardening cake. He gathered with his eyes the nameless dead, the many dead for my sake, unforsaken, so that I should not die like them in dread, but love them, seeing them as once he saw. He filled his eyes with them, he was mistaken. Like them, I must go out to meet my war. I mean, my first reaction to this is just like how sad it is that generations of people continue to fight. I mean, not the same exact battle, but but the same ongoing war. I think this is a sadness that's shared in both Israeli and Palestinian society, this generational trauma. Yeah, trauma is the right word. And, and one of the things that we learned on one of the trips in Israel is that it's not post-traumatic stress disorder. It's just ongoing trauma. There are those that feel it all the time. And and it's there inter intergenerationally, like you said. It just goes down from one to the next, which is a tragedy. And yeah. Yeah, I it's hard to talk about, but I I think I remember when we spoke about trauma, that was when we were visiting Kibbutz Aza, which is on the border of Gaza. And there, gosh, I'm trying to remember if you look at the map of like how long Israelis have to get to a bomb shelter. I, I want to say it was under 10 seconds for their community. And I, one of the stories that will never leave my mind was them saying that one of the first things that little kids learn in their community is how to respond to the to the sirens to get to the bomb shelter and like before they learn to walk they learn to raise their arms up in the air when the sirens go off so so an adult or an older kid can come by and scoop them up and run them into a shelter which is like I can't imagine living my life like that. Um, That being said, like they loved their lives. They love their kibbutz. When we were there, they had new members like signing up to move into this community. While there's the sense of fear from living so close to the, to the danger, to the rocket fire, there's also a sense of freedom in their community that they all trust each other and their kids sort of run free. I think there might have even been a wait list. I'm trying to remember exactly what they said about how long it is or what the process is of being able to move in, that there are people that are that are lining up. Yeah. Yeah. People who who live there believe in being there. They believe that they're, you know, I don't want to say living the dream, that's not the right phrase, but that they're doing important work by being there and living their lives there. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think we see this in Amikai's poem that his father had this dream 
to change this and like to not be in a war by the time it would be his son's turn to serve. You know, his father's dream was ultimately that they find some kind of peace, it seems. He doesn't he doesn't speak directly about peace, but, you know, a dream to not be in war anymore. <laughs> ultimately, some some level of peace would would come from that. Well, the line four from the bottom, so that I should not die like them in dread, that his father is, I think, fighting so that there is some measure of peace that his son doesn't have to be in conflict and, and die in that same in that same way. Exactly like you said. I remember at that kibbutz, one of the most beautiful stories they told, like they shared a lot of a lot of the difficult things that they faced, but they also sort of shared their dreams for the future and their memories of the past, which included not having this this border between the Gaza Strip and the rest of Israel, where Israelis and Palestinians can can cross freely and like everyone have access to that community and that beach. And they spoke about before the border was there when they could cross freely, that they would all share the beach, Israeli families and Palestinian families and picnic next to each other. And, you know, I don't know what what the true image of peace was and what it felt like to the Palestinians at that time. But this Israeli community really spoke of of hope for a future where they could live with their neighbors and not in fear of each other. God willing, right? Yeah. But just the last line that I think that it's not just that the author is saying that I must go out to my to meet my war, but it's it's sort of ongoing that this poem could be read by, I mean, again, God forbid, but the way that this author sees things as they are and how they might continue, that it could unfortunately be read by somebody in a generation or two. And the I is that future person. I mean, like I said, God forbid that it's open-ended. Unfortunately, I think the author felt like it had to be open-ended because of the situation. Yeah. Like how many, you know, in, in this context, it's fathers and sons, but everyone serves in Israel, how how many parents and children can fit this family model of serving and hoping for something better for your children, and and then coming to find that your children and your grandchildren are in the same situation? You know, I think that's that's part of the intergenerational trauma. And we did a little bit of studying communal trauma this week. The way that um, man, I wish I had Betsy's definition, but I don't, so I won't. If you have it, that would be awesome. Let's see if I can pull it up for my notes. Hold on. But go ahead and I'll... I'll if I can yeah. Yeah. If you find it. For Israelis, I mean, they, they pretty much expect that their children will serve in the military and they spend their entire lives preparing their children to serve in the military, especially when they get to high school and they're like on the cusp because they serve you know, the, the moment they turn 18, they start their service. And I don't know, I just, I can't imagine knowing my whole life that, that that's where my children were going to end up and my grandchildren and, and, you know, potentially we don't know how many generations. And then I think that same trauma is on the Palestinian side of the conflict, right? I think whether you're in a family that is part of a, you know, resistance movement or, or you're just simply living 
in the West Bank or Gaza and and trying to exist and survive, knowing that your children and your grandchildren will face the same things that you've faced and that your parents faced and that your grandparents faced is, um, it's a hard thing to swallow. I think for me, it makes it easy to, easier to understand why it's so hard to come to peace. Like that trauma is compounded generation after generation. And it's harder and harder to see a world that is not clouded by that trauma. I found the definition. So Dr. Stone, Dr. Betsy Stone said that, and I quote, trauma is the response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope, causes feelings of helplessness, diminishes their sense of self and their ability to feel a full range of emotions and experiences. So exactly like what you're talking about. And I think that when trauma like that gets compounded and passed down generation to generation, the feeling of helplessness must only get worse because the people that originally felt it maybe are still feeling it. And how much more helpless might one feel when they see their parents and grandparents feeling that helplessness from years and years, decades earlier? Yeah. And how difficult to break free from this idea that your neighbor is your enemy. Even, even if that's not the language that's used, ultimately that's, that's what's played out in society is that your neighbor is not your friend. Your neighbor is either, well, frankly, your neighbor is someone you should fear from either side. It can be looked at, right? I think it's important to say like Israelis are not a monolithic group. Palestinians are not a monolithic group. So there are Israelis who have done really horrible things and Israelis who have done really incredible things and, and Palestinians who have done really horrible things and Palestinians who have done really incredible things. And so I want, I want to be careful not to lump anyone into a, a category in that way. But I think when it's simplified, when it's distilled, it's that Israelis fear Palestinians and Palestinians fear Israelis you know, a story from a Palestinian mother that I heard when I lived in Jerusalem for HUC, I did an encounter programs trip where you really go just to hear stories of Palestinians. And then the Jewish participants that go and quote encounter their stories then have discussions on their own, but it's not to go and disagree with them and tell them they're right or they're wrong, but just to hear their experiences. Um, and this mother shared with me that, you know, she loves to participate in these programs to meet Jews who want to build this relationship and want to understand everyday Palestinian life and their common experiences but that like outside of encounter, it's very difficult for them to build relationships because the only Israelis that they ever meet are Israelis in uniform. Um, Israelis who are on their side of the border to control some aspect of their lives, most often entry at the borders. And that for her children, that means that the only Jews they've ever met are in uniform carrying massive rifles. And so like how, 
how can you grow up thinking anything different if all you've ever seen is someone in uniform with a rifle who's controlling some aspect of your life? On the one hand, it's really simple. And on the other hand, it gets more complicated. Like they're, like you said, it's not monolithic. So there are Jewish Israelis and Palestinian Israelis and other types of Israelis. And, you know, there are Palestinians that are, like you said, different groups within people that identify as Palestinians, whether they're Israeli citizens or not, and, and um, different religious groups within within that group as well. And, and um, I don't mean to harp on being sad, but I, did, I do think it's kind of sad that there are people that have only ever met an Israeli soldier who is carrying a gun and telling them where they can or can't go, that those are the only Israelis they've ever met. And I think you're right, that that's a significant chunk of the population in, in the West Bank. Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, for the Israelis who do meet Palestinians outside of uniform, it's often not on an equal playing field. You know, Palestinians who are allowed to come in and out of the West Bank are often there to do work that Israelis don't want to do. And that's not always the case, but but that changes the dynamic in society as well. It puts a level of hierarchy that that makes it difficult to build um, more human relationships that aren't so clouded by politics. Let's dive into the next poem. Okay, so Jerusalem. On a roof in the old city, laundry hanging in the late afternoon sunlight, the white sheet of a woman who is my enemy, the towel of a man who is my enemy, to wipe off the sweat of his brow. In the sky of the old city, a kite. At the other end of the string, a child. I can't see because of the wall. We have put up many flags. They have put up many flags to make us think that they're happy, to make them think that we're happy. I mean, first of all, the poetry is just gorgeous. Even in the English, again, like you spoke earlier about this ability to translate from Hebrew to English and and still have it read so beautifully, so poetically. This one makes me really emotional, more than the last one. I mean, speaking of strings, right, kite strings, it pulls at my heartstrings to think that the only reason to put up flags is to make other people think that we're happy. That's just a terrible reason to put up a flag. But I can see that that's how this narrator, that the, the perspective of this poem that's what they see. And that's just a really sad way to have to look at the view from your roof in the old city. I think that comes from what you were saying too before about how if the only Jewish Israeli one's ever met is somebody who's a soldier holding a gun telling one where one can or can't go, then of course it's easy to see the person across the way as your enemy, wherever you're looking from. And that's exactly right. Yeah, I think... One of the things that makes me emotional about it is the word enemy. I think it's true that a lot of Israelis feel that Palestinians are their enemy and Palestinians feel that Israelis are their enemy. You know, I know that's not true for everyone, thank God. But it's it's so much stronger than like even fear, right? We talked about fear with the last poem, but enemy to me almost includes this hatred, like this anger. There's, it's more charged than just being fearful. And I guess it's not surprising. It's just upsetting 
to have this desire for people to see each other as people, um, as human beings and not as, you know, one of the many identities that they hold. Right. Not, not distilling somebody down to, like you said, one identity that they're a whole person. And that even if two of those identities of two different people seem to clash in some way, there would most likely be at some level that those two people could get along if they were given, what is that phrase from some poem, world enough and time, right? If they, if they had world enough and time, they would be able to get along. It sounds like Shakespeare, but I, again, I'm not going to Google it right now. The idea of enemy though, and people really having that anger and, and hatred, what I hope is that, you know, there's this new role of Palestinian Israelis in the government, in the Israeli government where they have more agency than they've had in the past. There are changes that are happening where Palestinian Israelis have been elected to be part of the ruling coalition in the Knesset and people relying on each other as being, if not friends, as being colleagues, as being partners in that coalition, that may change things, that may help things to change over the long term. This has me thinking a lot about a sermon that I wrote, I want to say my third year of school, I called it the Israel pendulum, empathy and caution, which is actually after a Yossi Klein Halevi quote from his book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Anyone who's listening, if you haven't read the book, go buy it and read it now. It's like one of my favorite books about Israel, uh, particularly the second edition that includes responses from Palestinians. But anyways, that's that was a tangent. That wasn't where I was going with this. One of the stories I shared in that sermon is about, I'm trying to find his name, this Palestinian man who he stabbed an Israeli soldier and he spent a handful of years in prison after that. Um, but when he got out of prison, it's driving me crazy that I can't think of his name. I think it's Suleiman Khatib. But he, along with some other um, Palestinians who had formerly used violence, joined with a group of Israelis who had completed their IDF service and and felt like their time in the IDF was violent in a way that made them uncomfortable. There's a documentary about it on Netflix. I'll have to pop it in like some show notes because I'll have to look up what it's called. But what's really incredible is that these people came together and shared both like the violent things that they did with each other, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And then they shared their hopes for the future and they started this movement. Again, I'm wishing I could remember the names of these things, but they started this movement to work towards peace and open conversations between Israelis and Palestinians. So like it's possible and it is happening in society, um, but it's exciting to know that it's happening like on a governmental level and not just uh, social organizations, because I think those social organizations aren't necessarily reaching enough of the population to make, to make a significant change. And that's not to say that those small incremental changes they're making in their own lives and in their own communities aren't moving mountains because they are, but they aren't uh, solving the conflict in terms of giving us a path forward that looks different from, from where we are now. 
I want to say, and this could be wrong, something like combatants for peace. Yes. Jumps to mind. Is that, does that sound That's right? it. We're going to transition now from Yehuda Amichai's poetry to Peter Beinart's more recent published work. So Peter Beinart is a Jewish American journalist and a political commentator. He spent most of his life and career identifying as a liberal Zionist and as a practicing modern Orthodox Jew. While he still attends an Orthodox shul, Beinart's thoughts about the Jewish state have shifted pretty far to the left uh, in both Israeli and American political terms. So on the text sheet, we've brought two different articles, or I guess I should say quotes from two different articles. And I'm going to invite Ben to read a quote from the first article that was published in 2020 titled Yavna, a Jewish case for equality in Israel-Palestine. The painful truth is that the project to which liberal Zionists like myself have devoted ourselves for decades, a state for the Palestinians separated from a state for Jews has failed. The traditional two-state solution no longer offers a compelling alternative to Israel's current path. It risks becoming instead a way of camouflaging and enabling that path. It is time for liberal Zionists to abandon the goal of Jewish-Palestinian separation and embrace the goal of Jewish-Palestinian equality. So huge call to action, really. Like, this is the call to action that he's, he's asking of people. I'm curious, you know, Ben, I asked you to pick from these quotes. And so I guess the first thing I would want to ask is what drew you to this quote? I certainly have my political response and I will share it, but I'd love to hear yours first. Yeah, I felt like just jumping into the deep end. This is the climax of the article saying that, you know, no longer does he believe that a two-state solution is possible. And then even pursuing the idea of a two-state solution is only enabling the current path, the continuation on the current path that Israel's on. And he's very critical of that path. It was just really surprising. You know, I still do honestly believe that a two-state solution is possible and that I think it's the best option out there at this point. And so reading this, and I read this when it first came out or shortly after it first came out, I guess it would be a year and a half ago, two summers ago. It just really threw me for a loop to read this in print and, and then to discuss it in another class on Zionism that I was taking. So really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, I think I was pretty shocked the first time I read it. I did not read it when it first came out. So the first time I saw this article was in our Crisis of Zionism class last semester. So it's it's pretty fresh for me still. I have to say, like, I'm a little bit convinced by the struggle for the two-state solution. And that's that's hard for me to say. And, and it's hard for me to say, like, you know, sort of semi-publicly here. Um, because... I've always been in support and I wouldn't say that I'm not in support of the idea of the two state solution. I still, I love the idea of two states for two peoples, but one of the things that Beinart's that Beinart spoke about and that also some of the other people we studied in that course spoke about is the sheer number of settlements and settlers in the West Bank and the lack of land that's left 
to create a Palestinian state. And so I don't like, I don't want to say that I'm with Beinart on this yet. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I will be someday. Maybe I won't. I think I'm somewhere in the middle right now, but I'm, I'm curious since you're still feeling really good about the two state solution, what is it? What is it that keeps you in that spot? The two state solution offers the possibility of people to return somewhere, people to return to a land that is theirs. And one of the things we studied in, in this class, I think it might even be in the next article, so no spoilers, but the right of return for Palestinians, you know, is a huge deal and as well it should be. Yeah, I just don't see a one-state solution working. And so a two-state solution for me seems like the best viable option. And even though there are so many facts on the ground, quote unquote, that stand in the way of a two-state solution happening, I think that when people decide that they really want to deal with the situation and make things better, that a two-state solution has just as much chance of working and being viable as a one-state solution. Once people decide that there really is a crisis of Zionism and that they want to deal with it, that I can see I can see a two-state solution having a better chance of working. You know, it's tricky because I guess I'm only thinking in terms of the way the land is is laid out and drawn out right now, but I guess in reality you know, of a future solution could look like anything. Borders could be completely redrawn, which like is another maybe crazy, terrifying idea for some people to hear. But but I guess like we're certainly not here to solve the conflict and I don't think we're going to solve the conflict. But we we talk about a lot of the same ideas over and over and over again. And so maybe you're right. Maybe a two-state solution is possible. Like if people put their minds together, maybe maybe it doesn't look like the borders that we see right at this moment. Or maybe there's some Jews allowed to be citizens in the Palestinian state and Palestinians allowed to be citizens in the Jewish state. And I, I'm not... I want to be really clear in my heart of hearts, I am not ready or willing to let go of a Jewish state. Having a place in the world that is run by the Jewish calendar that cycles around our holidays that I go to and am part of the majority in a way that I've never, ever existed. I've always been a Jew in, you know, most of my life in Indiana. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, yeah, some of the things we've studied and and some of Beinart's work has made me like question two-state solution, but I'm not, (laughs) I'm not willing to give up on the Jewish state just yet. It's in the way I was raised in the way I I live and breathe. Israel is a part of Judaism. Totally agree with you. I'm not ready to give up on the state of Israel yet either. I think that one of the things that came up in class, we had a guest And the guest was saying that it was time to embrace the one-state solution and that the two-state solution was no longer an option. And our professor pushed this guest and asked, it comes down to a question of sovereignty or land. I mean, not to make things, reduce them to to binaries again, which gets us into trouble all the time. But for the simplicity of this question, if it's between giving up land and maintaining sovereignty, or keeping land, the one state of Israel, and then possibly in the future, losing Jewish sovereignty, complete Jewish sovereignty over that land, did this guest feel that it was an easy choice for Jews to make, Israeli Jews or the world Jews? And the question didn't get answered. And so for me, I think that it's an easy answer in that 
maintaining a homeland for the Jews and maintaining a Jewish state in the land of Israel are three really important things that I don't want to give up on. And so for me, Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel is, is big and I'd be willing yeah. to give up land to maintain that. But also I don't live there. So you know, there's a lot of factors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really an important what I want to do <laughs> with their state. So you know. That's that's so important to recognize. Same. I don't live there. I don't have citizenship. You know, there are certainly parts of me that that dream of making Aliyah. My mom will scream when she hears that. But um, I don't see it in my near future, at least. But that being said. I think the fact that we're so tied emotionally to the state and to the land speaks volumes about its importance in in Jewish culture because it's not only a part of our communities like it, it was the first year of our education right they think that that Israel is so important to our rabbinates to our becoming leaders of the Jewish people that that we should live there, that we should learn the language, that we should learn the culture. And I mean, I certainly had my ups and downs with the place, but ultimately I I feel home in Israel as much, if not more so than I feel home in Indiana. So we people talk about whether or not nations versus states and this and that, and how, you know, shouldn't minorities have all the same rights. It gets very complicated about, you know, who has what rights in which state. The fact remains that I went to school as a kid and there were Christmas songs, you know, at school assemblies. And there are Christmas songs playing in the stores in all over the place, you know, when you're shopping around the season and Christmas trees in in front of government buildings, like all the things. And so, you know, to say that the U.S. is a I don't know that anybody would say it's a totally equal place for everybody, but I think that that people forget that like even here where everyone is talking about democracy in a certain way, there are definitely majority rules about certain things that happen because it turns out happens that the majority of, of people in the U S still right now are white Christians. And so they get to make a lot of the rules. Yeah. I, I had very similar experiences growing up. Um, my brother and I went to a really, a pretty small school. My graduating high school class was 126 people, I think, pretty small. And we were like one of two Jewish families. So yeah, you know, I sang Christmas music. I was in like a Christmas madrigal once in full costume and a meal and the whole bit. And we usually had some Jewish song mixed in there. I guess I can appreciate that there's that and not nothing. Okay, so we're going to shift now into the second article from Peter Beinart that was published in May of, what, almost said this year, but last year, 2021, since it's now just a couple days into January of 2022. So so Peter Beinart's article from 2022, one, uh, which is titled Teshuva, a Jewish case for Palestinian refugee return. And I'm going to choose the bottom right. So the third quote for Ben and I to dive into. So it reads, the establishment Jewish narrative admits that the vast majority of Palestinians forced from their homes committed no violence at all. In Army of Shadows, 
Hebrew University historian Hillel Cohen notes that most of the Palestinian Arabs who took up arms were organized in units that defended their villages and homes, or sometimes a group of villages. They ventured beyond them only in extremely rare cases. He adds that frequently, local Arab representatives had approached their Jewish neighbors with requests to conclude non-aggression pacts. When such efforts failed, Palestinian villages and towns often surrendered in the face of Zionist might. In most cases, their residents were expelled anyway. Their presence was intolerable, not because they had personally threatened Jews, but because they threatened the demography of a Jewish state. Just as difficult, but it's making me think about an experience that I know Ben and I share in our year in Israel, which we actually did in different years, but uh, we had the same learning experience. We visited a forest that was once a Palestinian village and trees had been planted on top of it. Yeah. Oh, it makes me think of the same thing as far as people expelled anyway, because it threatened the demography of the Jewish state. I remember really being struck by going to that beautiful green verdant forest and then having somebody speak to us, they, you know, school really did try and give us um, multiple perspectives as, as often as they could. And a man came and spoke with us who was there in that Palestinian village. He lived there. He was a, a kid when they were evacuated. And he remembers, you know, he pointed to where his house used to be and where his lawn was. And they played, you know, sitting in front of the house. And um, he told us this story. And I remember looking around and trying to visualize what a village might have looked like on this area. And the one thing that remained that I definitely still saw there was there was a water wheel in it didn't it wasn't like a huge running stream at this point but it, I can imagine how it might have been at one point before whatever dams or whatever were erected or um, water yeah. was redirected who knows but we got back to the kibbutz that night where we were staying at or wherever we were staying and we had to do this program where we discussed we talked about our values at the time about ranking the importance of a Jewish state, you know, sovereign state versus a homeland for all the Jews versus a democracy and where we found ourselves feeling what was most important that Israel be. And it was a really challenging program to go through after such a challenging day. And um, I'll never forget it. The thing I remember most vividly is when we arrived at the site, we didn't know what it was right away. We had just picked up the Palestinian man who grew up on that land that was once a village. So we had just picked him up on the bus and we didn't have any idea where we were and we all get off the bus and it's gorgeous. I mean, I'll, I'll post a picture of this forest. I have a, a few pictures of it um, that I've shared before. So I'll include one of those because it's really, it's a beautiful place. We got off the bus and a lot of people were taking pictures, taking selfies, like, oh, it's so gorgeous, so much fun. And then, you know, about three, four minutes later, we we shifted into, okay, everybody come around and listen. We're going to listen to the story. And, and I think when we understood the land that we were standing on, so one of the things that we haven't said is that those trees were planted by the JNF, 
this is a JNF forest. We, a lot of Americans and I think diaspora Jews in general, remember a little blue tzedaka box raising money to plant trees in Israel or doing a campaign on Tu B'Shvat where you plant trees in Israel in memory of someone. Um, and I can remember doing this my whole life, putting coins in the box and also doing like full tree donations in people's memory. But I never knew that those trees in some cases were planted on top of villages to, in a sense, make it impossible for people to come back. And that's been, I think, it was maybe one of the first things that that started to put the conflict in a new perspective for me as a first-year rabbinical student. And I've, I've learned so much since that time. And I guess what I can say about it is every new piece of information only complicates the story for me. The more I learn about Israel historically or culturally, I, I don't think it simplifies things. I think it makes them more complex. You can't see it because this is on the, uh, you're listening audio, but I'm nodding my head in agreement with Maddie that uh, it is really complicated. And, and I too planted trees, you know, through the JNF. Specifically, there's one with you used to plant a tree and then you get like a, I don't know, a paper sort of printout thing with like you could say dedicated to or in memory of and like this little picture and you could hang up the thing or frame it or whatever and I think on my bedroom wall still there's one that's hanging up or at least it was there for years that I planted a tree in honor of my great uncle Jack my dad's uncle I never knew him but he was a big part of my dad's life and he was my Bubby's brother and you know going to this forest and seeing these trees and having a whole new understanding of what their purpose was in being planted or a purpose pulled the rug out from under that experience that I was proud of, of having planted a tree in honor of this guy that made such a big positive impression on my, on my family. Yeah. This still makes me kind of sad. Yeah. I feel the same for anyone who wants to learn more about that. I don't know if the documentary is available in the States right now, but I know they have a Facebook page and I'm following it to see next time it pops up in the States. There's a documentary recently produced called Blue Box and I watched it as a part of an Israeli film festival in the States, but it is about the founding of the JNF in pre-state and early state Israel. It's really interesting. A lot of the material is from primary source documents from the journals of one of the men who constructed a lot of this. So just a, another resource to add to the never-ending list of resources to watch and read and listen to. Let's talk about this question what do we think we should be teaching in Jewish institutions? And is it our job to present all sides? So this isn't a question that's on the text sheet for everyone. This is something I really thought Ben and I, as Bizrat Hashem, God willing, almost rabbis, this is a big question for us. Like, what should we be teaching and, and should we present all sides? So Ben, I'd love to hear from you first. Sure. I think that there are, there are many people who say God, Torah, and Israel are three huge components of what it means to be Jewish. And I agree. And there are people that different that interpret in many different ways what Israel means to them in that God Torah in Israel. And so I think my for sure answer is that we should be teaching Israel in some form in Jewish institutions. And I 
I have my own, you know, I would say love of Israel. I would say knowledge of Israel. Other rabbis would disagree with me. But I also think that it is my responsibility as somebody who wants to teach and hopefully instill a love of Israel to teach a nuanced perspective. You know, age appropriate as kids get older and be able to, to handle nuance, that they understand that it's not just all falafel and, and watermelon and, and, you know, that there are more things going on and that... It's impossible to present all sides. I mean, that's what people write their doctoral theses and still have to make it narrow in order to get done ever, right? But I think that it's it's on me as an educator, God willing, an educator, to try and be even-handed and present nuance. You know, of course, I'm teaching about Israel. I would love for my students to care about Israel. And there's no surer way to get a student to completely step away from everything than only teach them a part of the truth and have them get to school or get to college or get to Israel on a birthright trip or whatever and discover that they were lied to for years. So I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I agree. We certainly can't present all sides. I think um, for me, when I say presenting all sides, it's like all sides that I have yet been made aware of in my life thus far, <laughs> uh, because I know I don't have it all. Like I know there's so much there's so much information that I know there are things that I'm lacking. Um, but I also would like to believe that I've worked to build myself sort of a balanced toolkit of multiple narratives, both within Jewish culture and outside of Jewish culture. I really appreciate what you said that like, we should be teaching Israel, Stom, period. We should be teaching Israel. Yes, I agree. It's a part of our culture. That doesn't mean that we have to teach that Israel is perfect because that's not the case. We can teach that it's run by humans and that humans are fallible. And sometimes they make choices that we agree with. And sometimes they make choices we disagree with, just like the humans who run the government here in the United States. We continue to love and respect our country while disagreeing with things that happen in government. And I think the same can be done with Israel. For me, and I think it really echoes what you said, it's about giving our learners the opportunity to really form their own opinions. It's about providing them with enough information that they can say, this is what I see and this is what I understand. Not to walk out of our institutions repeating the words that we've said to them because that doesn't that doesn't move us anywhere in the conversation if we're all just echoing each other's thoughts. My hope in Israel education, yes that it includes some of the fluffy stuff that helps us fall in love with Israel like the food and the language and the music and like the beautiful pieces of culture and and also that it includes the difficult stuff because it's not a real conversation if it doesn't include both of those things, right? In the real world, we have both of those things. We have the falafel and the music and the joy and the holidays and the wars and the military and the sadness and it all exists together. And I think it all needs to exist together in our communities in the United States too. There's a song that I think winds up becoming one of those focal points of beautiful music and um, tying in with memories of war. Um, Naomi Shemir's Lu Yihi, which has some echoes of uh, Let It Be by the Beatles. 
it came out apparently right before the Yom Kippur War and became sort of the the song of that time period. And I heard it my first time when we were on our year in Israel, when I was on my year in Israel. And I'll send you a link. Maybe it's one of the things you want to put in with your resources to, <laughs> if you'd like it. Yeah, um, please do. But anyway, it's just it's it's that sense that you know the things it, with an even-handed view of a culture, any culture, the good stuff and the bad stuff overlap. Not good and bad, like again, reductionist, but that the things they they go together because human beings aren't just one dimensional or two dimensional. We're we're three dimensional beings, and we have more than one facet facing up at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I guess at this point, I just want to thank you. You know, we could dive deeper and talk for hours and hours and hours. I don't know about you, but I feel like we just started this conversation. I just, I really want to offer my gratitude for, first of all, your bravery and your willingness to have this conversation with me. Israel's a passion of ours, but a lot of people are afraid to speak about it. You know, like you said, we don't have it in every community. We're not talking about Israel. So I appreciate your your bravery and your willingness to come and have this conversation with me. And I, I look forward to many more conversations with you about Israel. Well, likewise, I look forward to being in touch with you too. And thank you for having me. This was a great experience for me as well. This episode of Sichot Kashot was recorded, produced, and sound engineered by me, Maddie Anderson. I want to thank my thesis advisor, Dean of HUC's historic Cincinnati campus, Rabbi Jonathan Hecht, for putting up with me throughout my creative process and offering your support along the way. And of course, to Ben Dime for joining me in this difficult conversation. Lehi Trout! Mm-hmm.